G'day and welcome to the Dolby Anglican Podcast. My name is David and I'm one of the ministers at Dolby Anglican Parish. We're a church that's all about knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit anglicandolby.org.au. This week's sermon is the first in a series on the seven deadly sins and the seven life-giving virtues. And it's a topical sermon on pride and humility. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Well, friends, today we're kicking off a new sermon series that will take us through Lent and on to Easter. It's called Seven Deadly Sins and Seven Life-Giving Virtues. Now, the seven deadly or cardinal sins aren't something we talk about often in the Anglican Church. But they're an ancient way of thinking about sin and how to combat it in our lives. In fact, the concept of deadly sins has been around since 400 AD. And there have been many people who've put together lists of different sins. Um, and so if you look online at the seven deadly sins, you'll find there's, there's different perspectives on what are the seven. But things like gluttony, lust, avarice, sadness, anger, sloth, vainglory, and pride come up. Constantly. The list we are going to work through over the next seven weeks is pride, greed, wrath, envy, gluttony, lust, and sloth. Now, before you switch off and think, oh, a great, another reason to feel terrible about myself, I want you to know that our focus over this series won't be on sin. Our focus will be on love, God's love. The goal isn't to bash ourselves over the head with a list of our shortcomings. Instead, it's to lift us up, to see how God calls us to more and how God helps us to run from sin and towards his amazing grace. One of my favourite verses uh, is Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, which is worth committing to memory. It says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So to counteract all this talk of sin, we're going to talk about the seven life-giving virtues. So here's our list of deadly sins, and here are the seven life-giving virtues, which came later, but they're just as important. Humility is the one we're going to focus on today. Charity, patience, kindness, chastity, temperance, and diligence. I think I might give Zoe the sermon on chastity. But God wants our church to overflow with life-giving virtues. And so it's important that we take God seriously if we want to overcome sin. Back in 2003, back when I was in high school, people dressed like this. Um, Thank goodness they don't do that anymore. But uh, ice cream brand Magnum launched the Seven Deadly Sins range. And for me, this really typifies what our world gets wrong about sin. We treat it as an indulgence, 
Something a little naughty, but ultimately too delicious to resist. We've turned vices into virtues and virtues and into, into vices. And that's why I firmly believe this is going to be such a helpful series. It's going to help ground us and empower us to live lives inspired by the Holy Spirit. So today we're going to concentrate on pride and humility. And pride really is a sick sense of health, a sick sense of self. And pride also, like the Magnum commercial, is a great example of a vice becoming a virtue in our world. We're told again and again that we should take pride in our work. And, and it's good for parents to be proud of their children. In this cultural moment, we have all sorts of pride. Pride is just, it, it's a tag that is associated with goodness. We've got Aussie pride, black pride, gay pride, and so on. It's good to be proud of yourself and to love yourself. And in our world, it's bad to have low self-esteem. So how can pride possibly be seen as a deadly sin? Is this just an example of the church needing to get with the times? Well, let's go back to the beginning and see where this problem with pride comes from. At the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world from nothing. With creative words, he makes the stars, the planets, and our world. Oceans and continents, icebergs and volcanoes, fish and flamingos. And in the pinnacle, he creates people, male and female. They're created in God's image, and it's all good. But things go south in Genesis 3, the reading that Don just read. A snake slithers into the garden where God put the first people, Adam and Eve. And he begins to create confusion. He slithers up to Eve and without a word of introduction, simply says, Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? It seems like an innocent question, but it's laced with pride. The word Satan means tempter or accuser. And here Satan tempts Eve into accusing God of holding something back. And Eve pushes back. She boldly contradicts the Satan, the tempter. She says, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say... You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it, or you will die. But here is her undoing. You see, God hadn't created Eve when he gave her husband Adam one rule. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, God says to Adam... You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will die. Notice God doesn't say anything about touching the tree. Eve can be forgiven for thinking that he did because she wasn't there when these words were said. This is the reason why 
Satan tempts Eve rather than Adam. Adam was meant to honour his maker. He was meant to care for God's creation. He was meant to protect his wife. But in Genesis 3, he's passive. He's voiceless. He stands back. He's right there with Eve, standing in the garden, but he doesn't say a word. And so Eve lets the tempter build up pride in her heart. And imagine all the incredible things that God might be holding back from her. Why is God keeping good things from me? What's wrong with food? Why wouldn't God want me to be wise? What's the harm in eating a piece of fruit? The problem with pride is that it leads to a multitude of sins. The reason why we're starting with pride is because it really is the gateway to the other six and to all sorts of destructive habits. It makes us think we're more important than we are, more important even than God, and it leads us to make dumb decisions. Eve eats the fruit. She gives it to Adam, who should have known better, and they unleash an avalanche of suffering that still bowls us over today. Adam and Eve's pride makes them want to be like God and turns them against him. Later in Genesis, we hear of Cain, whose pride leads him to actually murder his brother one simple generation away and then a couple generations away all people come together and they try to build their way up to God they try to go up to God and in their pride they are humbled pride harms us because it gives us a sick sense of self it gives us a disordered understanding of who we are and where we find ourselves in the universe the Hebrew word for pride, um, there's actually a lot of them, but they all have to do with elevation. Pride is elevating myself beyond my pay grade. If you think you're the Prime Minister of Australia, that's okay if you are the Prime Minister of Australia. If you're not the Prime Minister of Australia, it's not okay. Pride twists us back onto ourselves. When all we can think about is ourselves, we must keep pulling down the people around us to bring ourselves up. Pride is also really boring. It's dull because the people and possibilities around us bring colour to our lives. Notice this is what happens with Adam and Eve. From the beginning, God is a friend who walks and talks with them in the garden. But pride turns God in their minds into a threat. Someone who's keeping things from them and someone who needs to be cut out from their lives. At the end of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve find themselves outside the garden where life is boring, it is mundane, it's vanilla, it's painful and it's hard. The colour and wonder of the garden are gone and they're exchanged for a thorny wilderness. The harmony and the happiness of the garden are exchanged for conflict and sadness. 
The joy of the garden is exchanged for the drudgery and everyday sweat of life. The serpent promised the world and delivered nothing. God offered Adam and Eve the world and they exchanged it for a lie because of pride. So what are we to do about pride? In Harry Potter, in the Order of the Phoenix, a very proud but very boring and very violent teacher by the name of Professor Umbridge punishes Harry by making him write, I must not tell lies, repeatedly. And as he writes, the words appear on the back of his hand as if carved there by a scalpel. And it hurts him. And over time, well-meaning Christians have said to themselves, well, perhaps that's what we need to do with pride. We need to write lines. We need to tattoo it on my skin. I must not be proud. We need to prank, chant, pray, and meditate. I must not be proud over and over again, 10,000 times a day. Many Christians have gone down this self-flagellation path. But like in Harry Potter, punishing ourselves is a rotten way to change our behaviour. And it actually doesn't work. So what can we do? What can we do? Well, I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) Thankfully, there's a passage in the Bible that answers this exact question. And you'll find it in Philippians 2. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Paul wrote the book of Philippians from jail in a town called Ephesus. He was in prison for being a Christian, but he'd only recently started following Jesus. He'd grown up as a proud Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews from a rich family. He'd been educated in the proud tradition of a brilliant rabbi called Gamaliel, He was so proud of his accomplishments, so proud of his roots and his righteousness, that when other Jews started to follow a little-known teacher called Jesus, he got angry, very angry. His pride was threatened, and so he stirred up persecution and did everything he could to punish people for converting to Christianity. But one day, on his way to Damascus, with a warrant to terrorise Christians there, Jesus humbled him. Paul was struck down from his horse and blinded. And then he heard a voice from heaven. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus who you are persecuting, he replied. Saul is humbled. He's filled with fear. Here is Jesus, the man he's trying to stop, speaking to him from heaven. Saul thinks he might die, and he comes pretty close. Jesus blinds him and then takes him to the house of a Christian man named Ananias. Now, Ananias knows Saul, and He knows that Saul has been killing his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so here's the opportunity for Ananias 
getting a blind pull, knocking at his door to end him. But he doesn't. Instead, Ananias prays for Saul. And his sight is restored, and Saul asks to be baptized. Can you imagine how humbling that would be? And over time, Saul, the name Saul means prayed for in Hebrew, becomes known by the name Paul. And Paul means small or humble. Paul knows how destructive and crushing pride can be. And so Jesus, in his goodness and love, humbles him. Paul goes from hating Christ and Christians to being one himself. Then he gets locked up for preaching about Jesus. And whilst in lockup, he writes these wonderful words. These also are worth committing to memory. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Made himself nothing. Paul doesn't give us a 12-step plan to be more humble. He just says, be like Jesus. In your mindsets, follow the footsteps of Jesus. And what did Christ do? Even though he was God in every way, he didn't push himself up. Instead, he went down. He came down from heaven, became a limited human being like us. He spent his life serving others and died an unjust, painful and humiliating death on a Roman cross. Jesus gave up his rights as the Son of God. He gave up his comfort in heaven. He gave up his honour and glory as the Almighty to obey God and to serve us. We can't control everything that happens to us in our lives, but we can control our attitudes. You can proudly approach life expecting to be served, or you can look for opportunities to serve others. Many proud people have made a name for themselves, but none of them have made a bigger impact or affected a more positive change in our world than Jesus of Nazareth. So again, how do we combat pride in our lives? Do we need to say, okay gang, uh, this week let's go out there and be more humble than the Catholics across the road? <laughs> or do we sing along with the country singer, oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't stand to look in the mirror Cause I get better looking each day <laughs> To know me is to love me I guess I'm one hell of a man Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble But I'm doing the best that I can Think <laughs> about that, my voice is terrible <laughs> I love that country song, but it is. You, you try to be humble and you can't. You, you, you undo it just there. <laughs> Friends, the good news is we don't have to try to be humble. 
Jesus has already done all the work. We have the privilege of just following in his way. And if you live enough on this planet, Jesus will humble you. You just need to take the opportunity and embrace it. C.S. Lewis famously said that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. When we approach life with the same attitude as Jesus, we make no room for pride in our lives. When we serve others instead of ourselves, we lift each other up and glorify God. Lent, the season of repentance and humbling ourselves and focusing on the virtues of Christ, begins this Ash Wednesday. And on that day, we'll do something that is totally countercultural. We'll smear ash on our foreheads and remember our humble state before God and our need to repent. Pride gives us a sick sense of self, but humility restores us and restores our relationships with God and with the people around us. We are called to go down. That is why it's so special that we have guests from Dolby Family Support, because they go down to people, they go down to their level, and they help them, and they support them, and they lift them up. That is the mission that we are called to in Christ. This Lent, let's ask God to humble us, and let's look for ways we can take on lives of service to others in the footsteps of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Let's pray to him now. Loving Lord Jesus, we just thank you for our call to serve. We thank you for the honour that you would humble us and help us to realise our true selves. Surround us with your love and fill us with your presence and keep us from prideful thinking. Help us to have the same mindset of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen.